Welcome to Inspiring Doctors, a podcast series brought to you by the British Medical Association. I'm Martin McKee, a Professor of Public Health and the President of the BMA. In this series, I'm joined by people who I see as role models. They've successfully taken their medical knowledge to a wider audience in creative ways. So what inspired their work? What lessons have they learned? And what advice do they have for young doctors who may want to follow in their footsteps? There is something magical about the confluence of medicine and communication. My interviewees are only some of the role models who do this work, but they're all people who have inspired me. I hope that our conversations will, in turn, inspire you. My guest today is Ian Williams. Ian qualified from Cardiff and trained as a general practitioner. After his medical degrees, he studied fine arts and became involved in the medical humanities movement. He's best known as a cartoonist who established the field of graphic medicine. His graphic novel, The Bad Doctor, was published in 2014, followed in 2019 by The Lady Doctor, and he's now working on a third, The Sick Doctor. Ian is a founding member of the Graphic Medicine International Collective and an author of the Graphic Medicine Manifesto. He also drew a weekly comic strip, Sick Notes, for The Guardian in the mid-2010s. Welcome, Ian. Thank you. So it's not unusual for doctors to undertake degrees in other subjects during or after they have graduated in medicine, but a degree in fine arts is among the less usual ones. What was it that stimulated you to do this? Well, I guess that I was I was a kid that was good at art, in inverted commas, at school, and art was what I won prizes for. But at round about 15, you have to decide which way you're going. And I was an idealist and I saw medicine as, a, if you like, a useful and noble thing. I wanted to do good and help people. So I decided to, to study medicine, but I continued to make art. I'm somebody that has to create or be creative. I guess I found medicine to... Being creative within medicine is obviously slightly difficult. It's a very kind of protocol-driven uh, profession for, for good reason. Um, so I continued to make art. And then I developed a parallel career as a painter. I started to exhibit my work and sell it. And I felt like I wanted to professionalize that, if you like, and get some feedback. So... I went part-time and I took a what was called a, a Certificate of Advanced Studies um, in Fine Art at Chester and that was uh, meant to lead on to an MA in Fine Art um, and it really changed um, a lot of my practice um, but then I was keen on finding a link, if you like, between my art and my medical work so I took another swerve and I did an MA in Medical Humanities at Swansea and that really blew my mind and set me off on a, the kind of weird career pathway that has led me here, I guess. So what, at what stage in your career did you do the, the fine arts? So that was after I did my GP training. So after I did my VTS, I was doing the art all the way through. And I, when I was a, a young doctor, I guess I built up this side career. I was painting as much as I could 
And then that had kind of taken off a bit. I was represented by a gallery in Cardiff and uh, I wanted to give that some serious time, I suppose. And I was into exploring the the kind of connections between um, art and and medicine. The paintings that I was doing then were very kind of landscape-based. I was living in North Wales. I was very into climbing and mountaineering. And they came, the paintings came from a kind of landscape tradition, if you like. It sounds like you were packing an awful lot in. Yeah, well, I didn't have kids then. And... uh, (laughs) Makes all the difference. Yeah, I was young. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, explore the links between art and medicine a little bit more. Now, obviously, there's the the representation of medicine in art. You think of something like Rembrandt's The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Toop, for example. And then there's the physician as an artist. Vesalius, with his anatomical drawings, was maybe one of the earliest examples. And later in this series, I'll be speaking to Alice Roberts, who combines exquisite artistry with anatomy. And then there are many doctors who have been skilled artists in their spare time. Charles Bell, who gave his name to Bell's Palsy, or in our own time, Sir Roy Calne. And then there are those who have sought to diagnose artists from their characteristic styles. And in researching this podcast, I came across a fascinating paper from a Professor Marmer from Stanford that examined the science of visualising art and the many claims made about the eyesight of famous painters like El Greco, Monet and, of course, Turner. So he cautioned about making such diagnosis at a distance. So we've got all of these different ways in which art and medicine can intersect. And I'm interested to know how you see the link. Do you see, recognise all of these, some more important than others? Well, I think that there are a multitude of links and it depends really on what discipline or theoretical base you're coming from. I often think that artists and humanities scholars are maybe better at seeing the links than than doctors are, you know, maybe because they're working, they're thinking outside the biomedical model. Um, And the medical humanities uh, movement, this is an interdisciplinary field of study and is about taking a look at medicine using the conceptual tools of the arts and humanities. And um, when I did an MA in medical humanities, I was, I was really trying to find a link between the two sides of my career because I, I couldn't see when I felt that I was split, if you like. Uh, and it seemed to be partly um, to do with language. The language of art is very different from the uh, language of medicine, uh, which is technical and diagnostic. Um, and Anyway, I I did this MA and I found that the link for me was comics. Uh, I was reading um, a lot of the sort of new uh, graphic novels, uh, a lot of autobiographical work in comics. And I found a um, book by Brian Fies called Mom's Cancer. And I, I came across this in the Tate Modern Bookshop, actually. And I thought, this is interesting. Somebody has done a, a comic book about cancer. Um, and I kind of looked to find more. And the more I looked, the more I found. Uh, and in fact, over the last 25, 30 years, there's been a bit of a publishing revolution to do with autobiographical comics about human experience. So um, I wrote a dissertation about this. Uh, and as a procrastination method, if you like, a procrastination measure, I set up a website called, and I called it Graphic Medicine. And that really changed my life without uh, 
any exaggeration. Um, people started getting in touch with me and uh, graphic medicine has become a thing. Um, I've been invited all over the world to talk about things, talk about comics and healthcare. And we're on our 13th, I think, international conference. So it's been a, a very exciting uh, last 15 years, I guess. So I suppose when we look at this style of presenting information, one might think particularly off East Asia, Japan and, and um, other countries there, where this is really developed very much. How do you see the European scene developing? Well, I think in terms of the standing of comics mm-hmm. as uh, an art form, well, it's called the ninth art in France. Uh, I think the UK uh, lags behind with regard to, you know, comics are taken seriously in France and Belgium and Italy. And there's been a bit of a lag in the UK. They're sort of often still associated with, you know, children as a kind of throwaway kind of medium. But graphic novels have become a recognised art form, if you like, because uh, through a series of broadsheet reviews uh, by, you know, serious critics. Um, and, yeah, I think the UK is kind of catching up. Comics always goes through peaks and troughs, really, in, in terms of uh, standing and funding and, uh, you know, whether they're in or out. So I'm hoping that, you know, more and more people are, are reading graphic novels. Well, I think you're very well known through your Guardian series, Sick Notes. Do you want to tell us something about that? How did it come about? Well, yeah, that was a great gig. I don't feel it's my finest work, but it was a great gig to have, and it was uh, obviously sort of prestigious, and I did my best with it, and uh, it was hard. Um, So it came about because The Guardian reviewed The Bad Doctor, and um, the editor from G2 section of Guardian got in touch uh, with my publishers and said, do you think Ian would consider doing a a two-page strip for us? Um, And of course I said, yes. I'd gone from kind of, you know, no sort of real public profile to suddenly being asked to produce a a double page spread for The Guardian. So um, I did that. um, And then it came on through really sort of senior opportunity and being persistent because then after I did that one, I I had the the editor's email address. So I said, "Um, do you want me to do some more? He said, "Okay, we'll uh, pay you to do two more double page spreads. So I did those. And then I said to him, I think I should do a weekly strip. It was at the time of the the junior doctor strikes. Um, It was, uh, you know, a very kind of political time for medicine. So uh, I thought uh, maybe I could do something about that, the state of the NHS. So they said, all right, we'll give you a month. Uh, And then after that month, I just thought I'm just going to keep sending them in until they tell me to stop. So uh, I carried on for two years. and uh, it was hard work coming up with a topical story each week from the news and trying to kind of wring some humour or kind of wry observation or irony out of it. Uh, it was a tall order. So obviously there's the issue of trying to identify the message you want to convey, but then you've got to put it down on paper. Yeah. And how long does it take to produce a cartoon like that? Well, so for the Guardian strip, uh, sick notes, the drawing would take a day, but it was the thinking that took (laughs) much longer. And uh, the way it worked would be I'd have a conversation with the editor 
we try to identify some topical story and choose one. And then I had literally 48 hours to get the strip back to them. And yeah, sometimes it was straightforward. Sometimes it was very, um, it was very difficult um, to find any, uh, to, well, to work out what to say. Uh, I, he once uh, we were kind of scraping the barrel bit, and there was a, a story about meningitis, and he said, "Can you do something about that?" And I said, "Mate, there is absolutely nothing funny about meningitis. I'm not doing that." But so we had to find some other minor sort of story in the in the press. Yeah, well, it's really impressive looking at your work because you do combine health and politics, as you have said. You had some uh, fantastic images, the infamous Brexit bus with its wheels coming off. But then you go to the diagnostic ability of Google's DeepMind or the importance of good air quality. So you're covering an enormous range here. And I know that recently you were commissioned by the Welcome Collection to draw 12 comic strips about healthcare, giving human insight into an NHS under pressure. So when you, you've already said why you didn't do a cartoon on meningitis, but how do you decide what you will do? Well, with the Guardian strips, it was kind of prescribed, but with the welcome um, strips that I did, I was really given carte blanche to do anything that took my fancy. So I called the series uh, Sorry to Keep You Waiting because I felt that in my career as a GP, that's the phrase that I've used most. And I wanted to sort of show the the human side of doctors, uh, human side of particularly general practice, that doctors have kind of their own lives, their, you know, uh, their own failings, they're kind of, they are humans. So I was really, uh, I think I drew up a list of things that kind of uh, I wanted to address or things that just irked me. I mean, I did one I did one comic about read coding um, and uh, copped a load of flack from kind of coding, uh, coding, <laughs> coding nerds. That seems to have been rather ambitious to try to turn that into something that's humorous. Yeah, well, I don't know if it was humorous. It was kind of, uh, it was an observation, I think, um, about the kind of uh, read codes are diagnostic codes that are used within medicine to really kind of label conditions and, and kind of set off various digital protocols surrounding that condition. You know, I completely understand why they used. Um, it's important to collect data, but my point in the comic was that uh, I think people have to be really careful in how they handle read codes and that they are open to kind of misuse and can lead to sort of serious consequences for that person down the line when they say, apply for life insurance or apply for certain jobs. So it's a really nice example of an opportunity to use art to convey a serious clinical yeah. message. Yeah, yeah. So you have to portray individuals in your cartoons, all cartoonists do, and particularly if they're political cartoonists, and you've got to accentuate some of their features. When you portrayed Jeremy Hunt during his stint as health secretary, for example, you drew his NHS lapel badge upside down. So how does a cartoonist decide what features to emphasise when they draw public figures? Well, I can only answer for myself, I suppose. And I don't, I don't feel that I'm a great caricaturist. So um, with Jeremy Hunt, I, I mean, I saw his wearing of the NHS lapel badge as... Um, sort of deeply hypocritical because he uh, had a history of 
promoting, um, you know, a, like an American style insurance driven healthcare system for the UK, which would have destroyed the NHS. So I just um, I got fed up with him sort of posing as the champion of the NHS. And so I just drew the badge upside down. But I also drew him with a, a spring for his neck because um, I looked at him on TV trying to figure out how I would draw him. And I mean, he's got a kind of slightly vulcanoid features and kind of uh, slight divergent squint and sort of starey eyes. But um, the thing that struck me most about him is that he moved his head around all the time when he's speaking. So I I, I suppose I sort of took inspiration from Steve Bell, who often gives politicians a very striking um, sort of uh, feature, like drawing George Osborne in a gimp mask, for example. So I kind of gave Jeremy Hunt a spring for his neck, like a kind of nodding dog. Um, so that's how I decided. I mean, I thought that then I can kind of, if I'm going to draw him repeatedly and I give him these features, then I don't always have to get his facial features exactly right because he's quite difficult to draw. And I suppose as a physician, you have to be an astute observer of people. So does that help when you're trying to identify those features to emphasise? Um, yeah, well, yes, hopefully, maybe. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, looking at him anatomically or whatever, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a visual person and uh, I learn by drawing people, I suppose. So and if you draw somebody or you do life drawing or landscape drawing for that matter, when you are looking, you're looking really closely and you in some ways learn, you know, a lot about that object or person or landscape. It's a way of learning. Um, and, you know, when we were in medical school, that was how kind of how we learned. I don't know if that is still the case. I suspect that drawing is much less common. But, I mean, we were, we learned anatomy through drawing. We learned, you know, cytology through drawing. Um or at least I did. But I'm, I did too. I'm I pretty sure too. we would sell that we had to. But I'm sure that you did it much better than I did. So your two most ambitious projects were your graphic novels, The Bad Doctor and The Lady Doctor. And the amount of work that you must have put into them is enormous with maybe eight or nine cartoons on every page. Did you realise how much work it would be when you started out on this? And now that you've had the experience of doing two of these books, do you find that you still work in the same way or has it changed with time and experience? Well, um, no, I didn't realise how much work it was. And it's a, it's a crazy amount of work. I mean, it's uh, it's an insane undertaking drawing a graphic novel. Um, and the amount of work... Uh, compared to the remuneration that you get, uh, I guess, is kind of off the scale. Um, yes, I've altered my workflow, if you like. I mean, uh, it's streamlined now, um, but I didn't realize how much work it was. Each book has taken me about three years. Um, probably about 18 months of that is kind of faffing around and trying to figure out what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. And then 18 months of uh, panicking and getting down to sort of proper drawing uh, and it all speeds up towards kind of deadline. Um, but it's an immense uh, privilege to, it's hard to get a publishing contract, especially in these days. Uh, the print publishing industry is, you know, going through kind of hard times. And um, once I was, you know, I chased a contract, I was given a contract, and then I had to deliver on a contract. And um, I mean, I feel that the graphic novels are my best work because um this is how i kind of 
work out what I think about the world and about medicine and about, you know, life. So um, I think this is one of the benefits of making comic strips is that um, it forces you to sit down and think about, um, figure out what you think about an issue, if you like, um, and then condense that into a kind of reasonably uh, concise series of drawings. And you draw in pen and ink? No, well, I did. So initially I started using pen and ink. Um, then sort of half, kind of halfway through the the Bad Doctor converted to digital, which is uh, has many advantages. So I use, um, I've used various uh, platforms, I suppose. I've sort of now use uh, Clip Paint Studio, or formerly known as Manga Studio, which is a an amazing drawing app, which kind of uh, I draw with a uh, an Apple Pencil on an iPad Pro, um, and it is like drawing in pencil and then overdrawing in ink. So it's the same process. Uh, you pencil it, you draw it, then you make the uh, speech balloons. Um, but the advantage is you don't have to use um, Tipex or, or, you know, if you spill ink on it, you can just, well, basically you control Z or right click and you erase your last stroke. So it's uh, it's much better. And then you don't have to scan it. It sounds a great idea. So in The Bad Doctor, the star, if that's the right word, is Dr. Ewan James. And Dr. James is a complex character who struggles with his own problems and those of his patients. So where did you get the idea from? Is he based on a real person? Yeah, he's based on a very real person. <laughs> he's um, he's based on me. Um, so uh, this is a fictional work with autobiographical elements. Um, he is he's not me, um, and his his story is not exactly mine, but he shares my experience of um, uh, mental health problems. So, you know, uh, from late adolescence onwards and throughout medical school, um, I had a really severe OCD. Um, and so, yeah, that's what he has. And, and you know, that OCD is... The themes of the book are uh, general practice, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, cycling and heavy metal. That's the... Uh, the elevator pitch, if you like. So it's quite courageous to expose yourself in this way. Did you ever have second thoughts about doing that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought, um, I thought no medical colleagues would would speak to me again. I thought they'd think I was sort of insane. Um, and uh, just before the book came out, in the period after I'd finished writing it, but before it was published, I. Um, I moved down to Brighton and I was applying for a kind of long-term locum job. And uh, in the interview, the doctor that was interviewing me said, uh, looking at your CV, you've, you've not done a lot for the last couple of years. What have you been doing? And I didn't want to tell them that I had been writing a book called The Bad Doctor because I thought, well, I, I'm not going to get the uh, job. Um, but uh, I did get the job and then I stayed in that job for sort of several years. Uh, and to my surprise, uh, you know, I was, the, the Bad Doctor was um, highly commended in the BMA Book Awards. I kind of thought I'd just be a, an outcast from the medical fraternity. 
So you got the uh, recognition and uh, now you're being interviewed as an inspirational doctor for this podcast <laughs> series. Yeah. So it's worked out rather well from that yeah, point yeah. of view. Yeah, I'm pleased. Uh, the stories are quite dark and there's more than a little swearing in them. Uh, we do tend to think of comics for, as being for children. You've already said, of course, that we need to move away from that. But who did you have in mind as your audience for this particular style? Um, well grown-ups I guess um uh, not children uh it's yeah uh I, I mean the the swearing I mean that's how lots of people I know speak I guess so I'm just sort of I'm, I'm aiming for realism and uh uh yes it is quite dark uh having OCD was pretty dark um and the themes of my OCD I guess were were kind of um it was based around luck and magic and religion so therefore um fairly dark themes uh but i'm a realist i guess so i, I kind of want to show both sides i want to sort of show the the kind of um the, the difficult side of medicine the dark sort of sides of life um and also i guess you know you want to make a graphic novel dr dramatic as well so uh um there are life has its ups and downs and it has its uh you know, light side and dark side, and you need both of them in there to uh, make a compelling work. Well, on on the dark side, there is a certain amount of philosophy in your books, and there's some pretty profound statements. One of your characters says, and I quote, doctors like artists need to be on nodding terms with the devil, otherwise we'd be ignoring a large part of the reality of existence. So are you a pessimist? Um, no, I'm not a pessimist. Um I'm a realist, I think. And um, so that quote is based on something that Terry Eagleton said, uh, that artists uh, must be on nodding terms with evil as all experience and uh, irrespective of conventional morality is, is grist to the mill of their art. So I took that idea and kind of extended it to doctors, I think. And um, I think what that character is sort of saying is that we, we all have to... Um, most doctors have to deal with some really dark stuff. Uh, we are in the business of dealing with human suffering and, you know, some of it sort of self-induced um, or, you know, trauma. And good people can do bad things. Bad people can do good things. We we have to deal with some very bad, scary people occasionally. And, and many of us would rather avoid that. But I think, you know, it's part of the job. And to really kind of deal with these people with sort of humanity or deal with this subject matter with understanding and humanity, we have to kind of acknowledge our own dark side and dig deep and kind of try and listen um, and understand in order to, to help these people find some redemption, if you like. So I guess that's my idea of what that character is saying. So we're looking at the pressures that doctors face, and you've been involved with a project called Care Under Pressure mm -hmm. at Exeter. Can you tell us about it? How did you become involved in it? Well, again, this came through um, the bad doctor, um, Daniele Carrieri, who sort of was running that project. Um, right at the beginning, uh, he invited me to um, take part in a workshop to to come up with ideas of what this kind of uh, project might involve so it's a a project from exeter university um that's still still ongoing and it looks at mental health in uh, healthcare 
workers and it uh, the first part of the project looked at what provisions um, certain trusts or hospitals were putting in place to try and help people's mental health and uh, it was great so I kind of was invited down to take part in this workshop and then Daniele asked if I would uh, do some drawing um, document the workshop process and then they commissioned me to do some cartoons and, and an animation as well. Mm, it sounds like it was a very rewarding experience. Yeah, it's great. It's good. One of the cartoons that uh, was from that project really struck me. It was where two junior doctors say that they're going to mindfulness training and the consultant says to them that they should be, quote, mindful, unquote, of who will cover them and reminds them that he will be writing their references. I was wondering where you got that idea from. Was it based on real life? Yeah, it's probably um, based on experience um, from being a junior doctor. I mean, um, talking about presenteeism, um, when I was a junior doctor, you really, if you took, well, I mean, probably the same now, if you take time off, your colleagues have to cover your work as well as their own. And um, when I was a junior doctor, you couldn't really go off sick unless you couldn't physically get out of and so we worked with colds, we worked with flu, we worked with broken limbs. You sort of dragged yourself into the ward uh, and you did your work and therefore you were supporting your colleagues. So I guess in this particular cartoon, the consultant is somebody of my generation talking to junior doctors who are going to go to a mindfulness session. Um, Self-care was an anathema really to my generation of doctors and mental uh, illness or stress or physical illness for that matter was seen as a weakness so you you had no excuse but to be there doing the work so uh, it comes from that experience It is remarkable isn't it how as a profession we are meant to be looking after the health of the population and yet so often we seem unable to look after the health of ourselves Yeah, yeah, notoriously so much of your work has been based on drawing cartoons, but now you're moving into animation. Can you tell us what the difference is between them in terms of how you approach them? Uh, well, the diff main difference is uh, if comics is a lot of work, animation is uh, several levels <laughs> above that if you're doing it in a traditional way. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of jumped at the chance of making animation. I'm a big animation fan, if you like. I grew up with uh, children's animation, sort of stop-motion animation, um, and Daniele from uh, Karen DePressure said, uh, oh, I know you haven't made any animation, but I think you should, and I've got a bit of money. Would you like to do it? So I went, oh, all right then. And um, this was another project where it kind of seemed at the time like a kind of quite a lot of money to do this, make an animation. And then I realized how much time it took to make it. I recruited a friend of mine, uh, Matilda Tristram, who teaches animation at Kingston to kind of helped me do it with me. She also writes Peppa Pig, by the way, um, <laughs> which is uh, amazing. Um, and so we did it. I did the drawing um, and I did all the drawings and then she scanned all those drawings and animated them. Then I did the soundtrack music, I guess, and Matilda added the Foley effects. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a five-minute animation uh, about... A GP who is suffering burnout, I guess. Uh, and it was great fun to do. And yeah, that's online as well. I, I would love to do more animation. Um, it's 
it's literally having the time to do it because I mean, five minute, this was a very basic five frames per second as opposed to 25 frames per second, uh, which, you know, Disney would use. Um, uh, but it took me months and thousands and thousands of drawings. So I kind of sent this sort of huge stack of A4 drawings on paper to Matilda and then she kind of photographed each one. Um, but it's brilliant. I love animation and um, I am also interested in animations that have any kind of healthcare um, content as well. I look forward to looking at them. So we're getting towards the end of this podcast and there are two questions that I ask everyone. First one is that we're talking about doctors as role models and of course you are here because I and others see you as a role model, somebody who inspires us. But who are the people that have inspired you and why? So, well, the two guys that I've... I'm, I'm sorry, my examples are both men, uh, but, you know... There have been a number of people who have been sort of personally very important to me and that I've found been inspired by. Uh, so these are living people, or at least they were last time I WhatsApped them. Um, so Martin Winkler is a, a, an Algerian French doctor and novelist and TV critic and essayist who um currently now living in Montreal. He was living in France, but he moved to Canada and I met him early on, um, I met him probably about 10, 15 years ago, and he was like very um, encouraging in my career. And I found great inspiration in his career. Um, and he gave me great advice. At the, the time, I was sort of thinking about sort of leaving clinical practice and um, becoming, going down an academic route, if you like, doing a PhD. Um, and he sort of dissuaded me from doing that and said, stick to your own kind of like creative work. Um, I think that is more important. Um, and, you know, being a doctor is brilliant material for that. Um, and you've been able to combine the two very effectively, yeah. as you've told us. Yes, yeah. Um, and, you know, my other medical hero is uh, somebody that comes from the same body as land that you do, but south of the border. So... Um, he's Dr. Ronan Kavanagh. Um, I don't know if you've come across him at all. He works in Galway. Um, he's a rheumatologist and he runs with uh, Dr. Alan Koss and Marish Houston. They run the uh, amazing .md Festival of Medical Curiosity. And uh, before Ronan became a rheumatologist, he was a keyboard player for the Irish rock group, The Stunning. Um, he's an amazingly rounded and energetic and sort of a brilliant person. Um, and Dot MD Festival is is you know one of the best things that I have ever attended. I've, I've attended and uh, one of your guests, Ian Fussell, uh will know this very well because uh, I think that was the last time I saw it. Ian was at Dot MD Festival. And um, Ronan is just such a force of nature and such a brilliant kind of organizer while sort of combining, a, you know, a full-time medical career. I don't know how he does it. Um, so I take inspiration from his energy and positivity as well. Fantastic. And my very last question, people listening to this podcast, many of them junior doctors, will hopefully be inspired to follow in your footsteps. What advice would you give them? 
well uh, with regards to comics um, and cartoons. Like, um, if money is important to you, uh, don't do it. Stick to <laughs> stick to full time medicine. Um, but if you do want to make comics, um, um, just do it. Uh, start making comics about what you know. Put them online. Put them uh, on social media, and you'll start getting feedback and encouragement from other people, or uh, or criticism, or whatever. But um, hang around if you want to get into the to making comics. You have to hang around with comics people, basically. I think uh, so. Uh, go to comics fairs, zine fairs. Uh, get to know your um, local comics makers because they're kind of all around the country and um, they're generally a great bunch. Um, so you have to kind of embed yourself in a scene, I think, to really get to know people, to get to know how to do it, how to distribute it and get it out there. So there's a community of comic producers. Yeah. Uh, this is social capital in action, something I've never actually thought about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah. So, Ian Williams, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Martin. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Doctors, a podcast series brought to you by the BMA. New episodes come out every Tuesday, so don't forget to follow us to get notified and give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts to help others find us. You can find a link to the transcript of this episode in the show notes and at bma.org.uk slash inspiringdoctors. The interviewees on this podcast are just a selection of those who communicate medicine in fantastic ways. To join the conversation on social media and tell us about doctors whose communication skills inspired you, tag the BMA on Twitter and Instagram and use the hashtag inspiringdoctors. This podcast is hosted by Martin McKee. It is produced and edited by Alex Covey. This episode was researched by Martin McKee. Special thanks to our guest, Ian Williams, as well as Olivia Clark, Rosie Hogwood, Gemma Hopkins, Susan Law, and Jackie Melman-Wicks. For more information, visit bma.org.uk slash inspiringdoctors.